you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. Please read with me. And he, meaning Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting his hand, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Please pray with me. God, I know... These are just a few verses, but they are loaded with many, many mighty things. And so in this time that we have this morning as a people, Lord, to hear from your word, Lord, I pray that you would do a work, a work that would go beyond any time or preparation or consideration, a work that is only possible by your spirit, Lord. I pray that you would work through the Word preached, and You would open up our hearts to hear from You. But not just to hear, but to be transformed. This can only be done by You. So we come to You this morning we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the early pages of Tolkien's uh, Fellowship of the Ring, we are introduced, or reintroduced rather, to Bilbo Baggins in the Shire. Bilbo is no stranger to Tolkien's stories, as you may know. He is the central character in the earlier story of The Hobbits. So as we come back in contact with him in the new book, The Fellowship, it is normal for us to expect or anticipate that there will be many new adventures. Many new things. After all, these expectations bring us to the pages and wonder, what could these things be? What new adventures will Bilbo have? Will there be more dragons? Will his wit rescue his friends? However, this is not what we find at all. As we read, we find instead Bilbo is sort of hanging his hat. And in his own fashion, he calls together a very large and extravagant party to celebrate his 111th, or if you're a true Tolkien fan, what is it? 11th one. First, rather. Birthday party. I can't spit that out. I got too much tongue, I think. and, And as he's in the midst of this party and all are celebrating and they're taking advantage of Bilbo's preparations and all the food and the drink, and they're having a hard time sitting still, Bilbo does as he would, and he stands in front of them and he begins to give a speech. And as he gives this speech, everyone is laughing and they're jeering and they're celebrating and you can almost get the sense that you can hardly hear what he says. That is, until he gets to his final point in the speech. And this is how Tolkien says it himself. Bilbo says, 
Thank you very much for coming to my little party. Suddenly, there was obstinate silence. They all feared that a song or some poetry was now imminent, and they were going to be bored. Why couldn't he stop talking and let them drink to his health? But Bilbo did not sing or recite. He paused. Thirdly and finally, he said, I wish to make an announcement. He spoke this last word so loudly and suddenly that everyone sat up who still could. And he says, I regret to announce that though, as I said, 111 years is far too short a time to spend among you, this is the end. I am going. I am leaving now. Goodbye. He stepped down and vanished. There was a blinding flash of light and all the guests blinked. And when they opened their eyes, Bilbo was nowhere to be seen. 144 flabbergasted hobbits sat back speechless. And like that, Tolkien says, he was never seen by any hobbit in Hobbiton again. When we approach the end of Luke as we have, and the time that we've spent in it, it seems, just like in this story, that these last verses are a bit abrupt. It can feel like Bilbo's departure and that there is much anticipation and expectation that we come to this, and yet we are left with very little. Very little indeed. After all, so much had been told about Jesus' ministry, His death and resurrection. Why are we left with these four simple verses? Why not tell us more? Why not spend more time with the people? Why not uh, a little? Why more than not more than a little over a month? How how come he doesn't appear to those who actually crucify him? Or even better, what I would do, you know that thing he does where he disappears in rooms we read about. Why doesn't he do that to like Pilate or Herod? He doesn't even have to say anything; he just gives them a look, and they know. But this is what happens. All joking aside. There is nothing new to wandering about the ascension of Christ and understanding its place in the everyday Christian life. After all, life did not slow down because of Easter. For those who, who follow Jesus, it actually did quite the opposite. For many, life got, got more and more complicated, though exciting, certainly more complicated. So this morning, we will look closely at this event that we understand as the Ascension. And we will try to understand where it belongs in our lives. Where does it fit in our marriages, our families, our singleness? What does the Ascension of Christ fit? How does it fit into our jobs, in our suffering, or our celebration? Where does the, the Ascension fit in our broken homes? And what does it tell us about the mistakes that we've made? How can we, as followers of Christ, be encouraged if He is risen, but seemingly nowhere to be found? This morning, brothers and sisters, I would appeal to you that our text tells us at least three ways that we can be encouraged after Easter, no matter what life throws our way. The first of these is the ascension tells us that Christ's sacrificial death was enough. Christ's sacrificial death 
was enough. At first glance, this passage reads as if the author was doing nothing more than summarizing an event uh, that we can see more clearly laid out elsewhere. It was very tempting, in fact, to not to abandon the passage in Luke and jump over to Acts where we get a little bit more detail. This would have been nice, I'm sure. But there is a reason this is here. We have learned very well in this place, this church, that no words in the Bible are just there for filler. And I believe more than ever that that is the case in this passage. And so, as we enter, let us look again where he says, and he took them, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blesses them. Taking the disciples to Bethany is outside, it's a ways away, not, not by many more than a few miles from Jerusalem, and he takes them out there and it says that he blesses them. And he gives them what is understood to be a blessing of confirmation. Now this may sound odd, but it was customary for the people to receive such a blessing, and it was so common that I actually wonder if it would have been a surprise to them to have received it from Jesus. That is, because it typically wouldn't just come from your teacher, it typically would come from a priest. The phrase, or the, the text reads that he lifts up his hands and blesses him. And the phrase is no small matter because there are numerous passages in the Old Testament when the priest would finish the process of placing the offering or the sacrifice before God, and they would come out and then bless the people. If you would, read with me in Leviticus chapter 9, 18-24. Uh, hopefully it's on the screen. If not, just listen along. It says, and I applaud, this is the real good stuff. This is the, the, the fun stuff in the Bible. It says, Then he killed the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of, of peace offering for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces in, on the breast, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave across, offering for, before the Lord as Moses had commanded. Now pay attention. Then Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering, the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of the meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Did you catch it? The motion of what we see here in Luke and Jesus going, raising His hands and blessing the people is no common decency. Jesus is not simply putting His hands up as He backpedals to the door. You know, like when you're really trying to make an exit quickly without looking too obvious. He's not doing this. No, this is the motion. This is the action of the risen Christ, our priest, telling us something very vital for our faith. He is telling us that God has accepted the offering of His blood and His life and that we are now restored. The curse of Adam 
and Genesis 3 is undone, folks, the blood of Christ is announced as enough. Yes. And it is enough. You and I can know without hesitation that because of Jesus, there is nothing, nothing in your sin, nothing in your failure, nothing that you could ever bring to the table that is stronger than the blood. Nothing at all will keep you from walking in His blessing. Nothing will keep you from standing in His grace. As He ascended into heaven, we see the the glory in His blessing. We see the glory of the One through whom everything was made and for, for whom everything was made. We see Jesus, our priest forever. The One who did not offer up the blood of bulls, but by His own blood, once and for all, He has covered our sins, my sins, and your sins, and He has redeemed us as His people. This is what Jesus has done. The fact of the matter is that many of us here, though, this morning, we doubt. We doubt if our sin can be really covered. We wonder if God can accept us. Is this you this morning? Do you wonder if what you have done or what you have thought or what you continue to do is so strong that the blood of Christ will not cover it? It's not true. I can assure you that though the consequences of sin in this life may not expire, Christ's blood has forever paid the eternal consequence before the Almighty. Do not go another moment, not another moment, in doubt. But cry out, brothers, sisters, cry out to the risen Christ and ask Him to cover your sins and turn away from sin and shame. Turn away from that defeated foe and rest and know that the blessing of Christ at the, at the ascension is a guarantee and a confirmation that what He has offered is eternally secure and you can know forgiveness in the absolute most purest way in Christ. The second thing that we can know of the ascension is that the ascension tells us that Christ will never stop He will never cease to intercede for us. Knowing that Christ acts as our priest and that He has ascended into heaven, we can understand that He lives forever as our advocate. After all, He's alive. He is alive. And if we were to go and to read through the pieces between the resurrection and this passage in verse 50, we would see that Jesus over and over and over again is showing His people, showing us as we read that He is not merely a ghost. He is not merely a spirit. This is the living and risen Christ, flesh and blood in glory. This is Jesus. And He has raised, and in His ascension and being raised and going to the, to the heavens. We can know that He, as our priest, will live forever to intercede for us. You see, there was this problem with the priests. It was a bit of a bummer. There was plenty of them. The problem is is they keep dying. You've seen this, yes? One priest goes before and intercedes, and this happens, and eventually they fail to do so anymore. They die. And this is the argument of the author of Hebrews. Because Christ is different. He is alive. And he says in chapter 7 of Hebrews, 
but He holds His priesthood permanently. Not temporarily. Not for a lifetime, but permanently. Because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives. He always lives. Do you hear the resurrection in those words? He always lives to make intercession for them. Brothers and sisters, do you know that Jesus alive here and now is interceding for you as you sit where you are? The risen and living Jesus is interceding for us. This is good news. We can easily forget that Jesus being raised from the dead is even still a thing. And that the ascension makes this we don't realize and understand that the ascension makes this all come together. That is, even now, 2,000 years later, Christ is alive. But even more, He is alive and He is standing before every accusation. True or false, every accusation and responding with a constant and resounding, My grace is sufficient. That's where your hope is, folks. That's where you can look to Jesus and know my priest intercedes forever. His grace is always sufficient. Do you know this? Do we know this? This is no small thing. We who have asked to be covered by Christ often are bombarded with temptation. All the time with faced with temptation because we see our unworthiness before Him. Make no mistake, we are unworthy. We are certainly unworthy. But this is the actual point. That our unworthiness does not bar us from entering His presence as it once did. It is no longer a barrier for us, brothers and sisters. Why? Because Christ, our great living Priest, intercedes for us always. He neutralizes any bit of guilt that we have because He has paid for it. And He stands in the gap between us and our temptation. Our temptation to believe we're not good enough. Our temptation to think we need to work a little harder. Our temptation to think that one day maybe I could possibly get things together and then I can feel good about the blood of Jesus. No. He stands in the gap and He fills that gap and He destroys the temptation for us to feel the need to fall in rejection and He says, stand in My righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is Christ who intercedes for us always. Do you know this? There is hope. He is always interceding for you. He is always advocating for you. Always. He knows your struggles. He knows the power of the blood is far more than whatever it is that we could bring. Third, the ascension tells us that Christ has taken His seat as King over all. It is one thing for Christ to have been raised from the dead. And that is no small matter. I do not want to minimize that. 
but it is quite another that He would be brought into the throne room to sit at the right hand of the Father. However, this is what we see over and over again foretold in the Scripture. All over the Old Testament, multiple times, we are encountered with this final picture of God's man who will defeat all his foes and he will rule over all of the nations, all of the world. And Psalms chapter 2 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, he says in Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy's your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And again, in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold the cloud of heaven. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His, king, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. And in His ascension, we see the, this very picture of the resurrected King who has dismantled sin and death taking His rightful place at the right hand of God, but it is not as if He had somehow ceased to rule. No. You see, this is the problem. We don't feel. We don't feel that Jesus is sitting on the throne all the time, do we? It feels like cancer is sitting on the throne often. Bankruptcy. Marital problems, strife, infidelity, unthankfulness. All of these things, they tease us. They, they, they cause us to stop and to ask the question, is Jesus really on the throne? The ascension looks at all of those things and says, yes. Jesus is on the throne. Though it may seem as though all these things are out of control, we can look to the resurrected Christ and know that He, alive forever, has never, ever, and nor will He ever lose His grip, not even for a moment. That is your Lord. He is alive and He is on the throne and He is reigning as our King Supreme. He reigns. Every sin and evil thing ever plotted will be exposed before Him and He will deal with them all adequately. All those things, all those things that we fear will, never, will go untouched. Those things that you have not seen justice fall on, you can know. You can look to the risen King Jesus, and you can know because He is ascended and He is at the right hand that He will not let one thing go not set correctly. That can give you a great sense of relief when you feel like that's my job. 
When you think about all of the harm you've experienced, that can be a relief to know He is going to do it. Even though I have no capability, no know-how, no way to be sure or certain, or maybe not even to see it with my own eyes or hear it with my own ears, you can know that Jesus, because He is ascended and sitting at the right hand and ruling, He will see all things made right. And His ascension as King comes with a promise. It comes with the promise that we know that in the way that He sits and rules even now, He will return to His people and He will rectify all things. There will be a day whether we are asleep in the Lord or awake, we will see the risen Lord return for His people. And there will not be a knee that does not fold like a chair. Everyone will fall and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is your King. This is the risen and ascended Lord. We will see Him in His glory on that day. And there will be none in all of history who will, dis- who will deny His supremacy. And so, as we walk to see and, and understand the ascension in this way, and we learn these three things, you may be sitting in your chair, as I imagine some of you are, probably my kids, going, okay, so what? What's the point? What's the point? How does this help me in my week? How does this help me in my sorrow? My difficulty? How does this help me on Tuesday and Wednesday when there's no rest in sight? It hasn't quite come over the hill yet. And so I'd like to point us back to our text. If you look at the text, it says, while He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Brothers and sisters, we endure by laying hold of the living and ascending Christ. We endure by being fixed on Jesus. We do not receive a blessing from any priest who will die like the rest we receive a blessing from God Himself. So we look to Jesus, and when we hear the blessing here, we look and we think, and we can hear even as in the priests in Numbers where they say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That, in the face of Jesus, we worship. We worship. Because unlike before, the follower of Christ hears the blessing from God Himself and not from the priest. They hear it from Jesus. Even more, we don't just hear it, we see it in the face of Jesus. Or I think, as Kelly Capick puts it so well, I had to put it on the, for you to read. He says, whereas Aaron could lift his arms and pray for God's face to shine on the people, In seeing Jesus ascending into heaven, these believers saw the actual face of God shining. 
Well, they they had heard of God's graciousness. Now they had seen Him who is gracious. While they had held out for God's lifted countenance, they now saw it actualized. While they had longed for the peace promised in the benediction or the blessing, they now knew Him who was peace. The great High Priest came and not only pronounced His benediction or blessing, but He became that benediction. He became it. Here the medium is now the mediator. And thus He has not looked beyond, but rather look to those who saw the ascension witnessed the personification of Aaron's benediction in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we look to Jesus as those who watched Him ascend. And we receive the greatest blessing of all, Christ Himself. We receive Him, and like these disciples, we worship Him as we ought to. We magnify Him in our souls. We cry out His glory and we let it permeate through all of our lives. Worship is how we face the world. It's how we go on. We worship Christ. So this is how we wrestle with our finances. We worship Christ as our only hope. This is how we persist when our children go their own way. We worship Christ who never ceases to advocate for us no matter how far we go. This is how we endure when our bodies break down more and more. We worship Christ who lives forever and will raise us up again with Him. This is how we recover from the trauma of abuse and suffering. We worship Christ who will heal heal all our wounds and reconcile every wrong as our defender. This is how we respond to the presence of conflict in our lives. We worship Christ who has laid down His life as a servant for His enemies. His enemies. This is how we fight when the blows keep coming. And they do. We worship Christ who endured the cross knowing the joy set before Him. Thank you so much, Zach, for mentioning that this morning. Brothers and sisters, the ascension is no parlor trick. It's no filling up the rest of the page, wrapping up the story. That's not what's going on at all. It's not an abrupt ending. It's not a disappointing finish. The ascension is the victorious procession of our tremendous king and priest who rules over all and lives forever interceding for us. Worship him. Center Church, worship him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the many, many promises you have given to your people. Thank you for your spirit given to dwell in us and help us, Lord, to see the majesty of Christ risen and seated at the right hand. Help us to to know how He always lives to intercede for us. Lord, build us up as a people to be those who are catching glimpses of the Son and are unleashed to glorify His name in all that we do. 
When life brings difficulty, help us to remember to look to you. To you who will always receive us and knows all of our struggles and we can know will never turn us away. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Champion who lives forever. Amen.